0: Hello and welcome to Words in a Time of Lockdown, a podcast from the Writers' Block Cornwall, exploring creativity and creative writing in a time of change. The Writers' Block is the creative writing centre for Cornwall, and I'm Polly Roberts, a writer and member of the Writers' Block team. We hope you find some inspiration in what you hear. For our first episode of Words in a Time of Lockdown Season 3, I had the pleasure of speaking with John Wedgwood-Clark, poet, arts project leader and senior lecturer in creative writing at Exeter University, among many other lives such as acting, TV presenting and non-fiction writing. John grew up in West Penwith and we talked about the place and importance that Cornwall plays in his work, what inspires and feeds his writing and his passion for sharing the power of words with young people. He also shares with us some of his poems. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did having it. Hi John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast with me. It's really lovely to hear your voice again.
1: Well, it's lovely to be here, Polly.
0: How how are you doing? How is the easing of restrictions for you? Has has life got a lot busier suddenly?
1: Um it's been wonderful to be able to get down to the south far southwest again to go and visit the Red River the project that I'm currently working on and and Mm. do some walking around there and actually write some stuff in response to the place I think because I hadn't been down for you know nine ten months I'd got notebooks full of stuff that I'd recorded while I was walking along the banks of the river this is a this is an ongoing poetry project that I've um, had on the boil for uh, probably about 18 months I'd sort of run out of steam and um, it was just great to just refresh my sense of the materiality of the river, the physicality of the colour of it, the, the energy mm. that there is in the Cornish landscape at this time of year. So that's that's been good. Um, I did a lot of teaching before Christmas, and that was great to have that sense of purpose again and to be talking about texts in detail with students. And that gave me a renewed sense of, oh, I don't know. I think, I think one of my feelings about lockdown is that it eroded my sense of identity, you know, that if you're mm. quite sociable, you're kind of constantly finding out who you are in relationship to the people around you. And if that diminishes and you spend more time on your own then you feel a kind of loss of um, the full extent of who you might be with other people. Mm.
0: I mean, I was thinking about you today actually when I was doing a bit of research for this and I was thinking how, gosh, John is a really sociable person and also you're a really outdoorsy person. So actually, it's interesting to hear you talking about those two kind of aspects of yourself that are so inherent to you, being limited for a while and the impact that that has had. I've walked a lot
1: around Exeter, and that's been that's been great. I mean, I'm always one for exploring. But we found the green lanes that um, run. Exeter's a strange city. I mean, within fifteen twenty minutes, you can move from the centre of it to the countryside, and Gosh. we've discovered some around Ede and around the Alfin Brook, and uh, it it has been good to discover. And revisit over and over again the same places and sense the subtle differences that have taken place throughout the course of a whole year. I mean, mm. we're now seeing things that we, I intensely remember from the first phase of lockdown. You know, it's the May coming into blossom, or there's a cherry tree at the bottom of one of the lanes, um, which blossom blossomed for about two weeks last year and I'm, we saw it almost every day and watched it all the way through those that phase of blossoming and then browning and then the leaves blowing off. This year, time seemed to speed up. Mm. It didn't have the same intensity, I think. I saw it coming to blossom and then I didn't really see it again because we were off doing other things. We could get on the train and go to Dawlish – we could cycle out a bit further um so i think i'll always really remember the almost visionary t- intensity of that spring during the l- first lockdown yeah. where every small thing seemed to matter and the silence opening up the background noises that surround us most of the time
0: yeah i have to say i re- i really feel that too i i know at the moment i so i'm down in west penwith and and the seagulls are all nesting but when i noticed them this time i realized gosh i've missed so many stages of this process that last year i was so intently kind of watching yes. each and every moment and yes. and i'm really aware that place is a big part of a lot of your work and like you said one yes. of the big projects you're on at the moment you've uh, not been able to be in that place so it's interesting yes. to hear you've still managed to really connect gosh. to place throughout wherever you've managed to be? Yeah.
1: Well, I think it comes from an early... I mean, I grew up in St Ives. Mm. Or more precisely, I grew up in Carbis Bay. I think the first nine years of my life was spent walking up and down Porth to Road onto to Carbis Bay Beach. And then I had a couple of years living on Porthminster Point before my parents moved just like We moved to but we didn't really move very far. Um, and I lived... I think for for various reasons, I, I spent quite a lot of time at a particularly intense moment in my life, you know, that puberty period on my own, walking around, exploring, going down, messing around in rock pools, spending hours in the little coves, watching the sea go out, watching the sea come in, hunting for fishing lures that fishermen would lose they get snagged on the seaweed and I'd wade out through this weed at low tide following the the filaments of the line and and retrieve them and and I and I think at a time when I didn't really have a language for some of the complicated emotions that I was going through the things that I looked at carried those intense feelings Mm. with them the sensuality of that landscape was almost a surrogate body if you like it was a way of I don't know. Um, No, they were very, it was very intense and different places had really powerful moods. Low tide, I mean, we all know this, I think, if you live by the sea, low tide and high tide have a completely different Mm. emotional feel to them. That sense of vacancy, of, of, of haunting a space that the sea usually fills that you get at low tide is so different to that brimful quality when the the water is high up around, in my case, Smeaton's Pier or whatever. So I think I think I discovered early on that that place spoke me in a way. It mm. it told me how I felt, or I I did my thinking through things, and I think that's carried on in a way my interest in well, at least initially, in poets that used things and images in order to carry complex, um, associative, or symbolic meanings. Um, But it really comes comes from that absolute love of just looking at a a stone or the way in which water darkening some pebbles on the shore as it comes in just completely transforms them and deepens them. Just the deep pleasure of looking, I think that's what I, and, and, and listening and all the other senses involved
0: Mm, because the senses are quite important to you aren't they like I've noticed with some of your projects you you like to bring in the visual art and with your current project audio as well so there's something about bringing all of the senses together
1: that's 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 very true um I mean growing up in St Ives we came from a the more religious side (laughs) we went to Sunday to, to chapel every every Sunday which is not so unusual but sometimes we go twice a day um, but we were, and my dad had a grocery shop in the town um, but we weren't the artistic side but I was always fascinated by these people who lived this very different life in the town so I think the visual arts thing it's a sort of early encounter with people who lived a completely different life beyond the one that I lived within and I was I was fascinated by their studios, by their mm. the, what they dressed, by the smell of the small galleries that they showed their work in. Um, and when I was a teenager, I used to sweep out the studios in uh, Porthmere, the St. Ives School of Painting, in order to get drawing lessons there on, on, on Thursday nights, drawing from the life model. So it was... Um, Having had what I think now, I didn't think this at the time, quite a religious upbringing, I think the visual arts offered an alternative form of praise and prayer and attentiveness to the world around it. There was was secular and wasn't burdened with some of the the darker sides that could come through what was sometimes a slightly Calvinistic strain of um, Methodism that I was um, brought up
0: within. So you've got kind of your different noticing. So with the the landscape, it helped kind of speak the emotion, and then the art was mm. there as a kind of different way of expressing something else going on. Yes,
1: because I, I wanted to be a I wanted to be a painter first up, um, uh, or an artist of some sort, and I did get a place to go to study foundation art at Falmouth, but realised also that I needed. It's very difficult. to. I wanted some control over language. But of course, what you finally discover is that you need to lose control over language in order to find out what you need to say. But at that particular point in my life at 18, I think I realised that I did need to um, not lead a solitary artistic life. Not that an artistic life was solitary, (laughs) but I somehow imagined it might be like that. Um, in the 1980s and so the pull of drama school going off mm. to to London and the Guildhall were just just took me away and I think it was there that I discovered the real power the physiological power of speaking poetry that I'd sort of had a taste of singing hymns and speaking from the pulpit and doing A-level English but I think it was really when I memorized poems and spoke them off by heart, and lived within their sounds. This the soundscape, mm. the, the, the the vibrations, the hum of the valved voice, as Whitman calls it, in my own body. When I understood that, then I understood, you know, the power of a caesura, the importance of enjambment, the the the, the 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 natural progression of breath through a sequence of assonantal vowels. Just how powerful that could be, because that's what I don't know poetic Mm. form often seems like it can uh, something a bit algebraic but actually it's just the codification of things we do naturally when we are feeling passionate or when we are going through a crisis. Mm.
0: When you were speaking then I, I could hear your speech as poetry suddenly when and talking about it in that way I could hear that change and that lift and that fall and the break and it's interesting to hear that being your route to how you discovered poetry as your art form, having kind of looked around you and been inspired by these various things and drawn to art and then going to acting school. Do you feel like poetry is your form? I do. I do. But it's 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 a cruel thing, poetry. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> there isn't any hiding space. And so many people have written so many brilliant poems. I... I don't know. Yes, I think it is. It is. It is that musicality, that phrasing, that extra something that can come just through the slight, early unusual arrangement of language uh, that I think makes it special for me. Although I'm quite interested in writing prose too, because I think, I think the boundary between the two is mm. very fluid. And I think good prose is often very rhythmic, has a sense of breath, has a sense of cadence. You know, a paragraph. I think Gertrude Stein said was that the 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 emotional unit of prose, and that sort of makes sense to me. That they that it that it sort of covers a whole moment of emotion as you work your way through a paragraph. So I, I don't really see mm. big distinctions, but. Um, but I think, but I do think it is. Right. It, it was, it is. Um, but you struggle um, with writing. I mean, I'm trying to write this poem about the Red River and, you know, some days I think, oh, yeah, it's going well. And then other days I think, oh, that is absolutely dreadful. There's no life in it. And I think we are looking for some kind of life and intensity and red hotness to a poem that is difficult to fake um, and you can spend an awful lot of time writing something and it still won't work. And that that, that can be the... Um, mm. That's the challenge. That's the joy of it, and that's the trouble.
0: So do tell me about this Red River project. So you you said earlier you started this huge project, Red River, listening to a polluted river, and it started a couple years ago? Yeah, or... it must be about...
1: Yeah, because it was very interrupted. It started... Um, Gosh, you know how how strange time has become. It probably started about fourteen or fifteen months ago. It started January two thousand and what are we in twenty one, two thousand and 2020, Yeah. Yes. So I had a couple <laughs> of months under my belt, and then COVID came along, and uh, and that was that. Um, well, I, like I say, I grew up in St Ives, and I'm going to just read you a a poem about. Fishing Off the End of the Pier in St Ives. It's from my first collection. And I'm, I'm reading it because I think I grew up in a world of transparency and light mm. um, with other kinds of, you know, psychological things going on in the background. But it, 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 this is just by way of the contrast in a very small area between two different landscapes. So I'll just read this and then I'll talk about the Red River bit, a bit bit. Grey mullet. So imagine, my uncles were fisher, my cousins are fishermen, and what did I do? I read books about fish, and uh, <laughs> that, was, that was that was, and I spent hours trying to catch these things called grey mullet, which are fiendishly difficult, and they there are lots. There used to be lots of them around around in the harbour. Grey mullet. Their mouths were small, lips too soft to tether a run, or bear their weight. When hoisted up by hook alone. I never owned a landing net, But read the book, And rolled the crumb of bread Into a seed of dough that hid the hook. Sometimes the bait would dance, Like a table at a séance, Until it fell away, eclipsed. More often, they just hovered by the steps, around green chains, scaling the distance between boat and shadow, oblivious, as if they listened out for someone to arrive, enthralled by a sound on the edge of their hearing. So, if you know St. Ives Harbour, the Mm. water is always really clear. But I would look out as a nine, ten-year-old when we lived near Porthminster Point and I would see the sea-stained a reddish ochre around Godrevy Lighthouse. Every now and then there would be this red slick in the sea and I found that strangeness of it really I, I just I didn't really know what it was and then of course I got taken to a tin mine when I was at junior school to Giva tin mine and saw all these enormous machines that crushed the ore, the sheds full of shaking tables um, and all the red water flowing from the tailings out in the case of Giva over the edge of the cliff and staining the sea there. And I put two and two together and realised that actually what was happening in Camborne or what was happening in, uh, at the mouth of the Red River at Godrevy was that mine waste was pouring down through the Red River Valley from the tin mines. And, and Cornwall and St Ives and, and Hale and around that, I mean not St Ives, but as soon as you got to Hale and a bit further around, it all became quite industrial. There was a power station at the mouth of the Hale estuary. And I'm sure, I don't know if this is right or not, but I'm sure I can remember it being fired up in the late, in the mid to late 1970s when there was the oil crisis. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But it was (laughs) there. And um, if you went into Hale, you would see all the Compaire um, compressors lined up as you went into Foundry Square. Camborne, they had a big Holman's, I think it was a bulldozer or something. But anyway, they had a lot. You, ha- you had a real sense that things were being made in Cornwall. These big engineering problems were being solved in these by these small communities and that this Red River flowing out from this obscure place, because we didn't go to Camborne that often. We went there to go to Tesco's, uh, I think, and occasionally had a walk around in Camborne. but usually we spent our time going to Penzance. To do any extra shopping that we couldn't get done in Ives. Um Camborne and that area had a real sort of, uh, for a young boy, and uh, maybe for a young girl, but, but a real sense of, I don't know, of a sort of stereotypical industrial masculinity full of mm. forces and energy and smashing and blasting and you know it's the digger thing isn't mm. it it's the, it's, the, it's the big machines so anyway when it when they finally stopped doing it i i felt a sense of um when when the when the river stopped being quite so red i mean it's periodically red every now and again but not really in the same way i felt it's got a sense of loss that something had gone from the Gosh, heartlands of cornwall but what was i being nostalgic for i was being nostalgic for a major pollution event that was taking oh, a place on so the coast so you're just sort of thinking why 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 do i feel nostalgia for for this of all things and for also for one of the great myths of cornwall you know my father wasn't a miner there was nobody in st ives who was mining there were very few people who were fishing, most people were involved in the service industries, you know, waiting on my mum waited on and was a chambermaid, I spent my summers working, serving ice cream and you know, carrying cases and things like that and yet, and yet the myth of Cornwall, of that industrial past was so strong that I felt that that almost epitomised the true spirit of Cornwall rather than the service sector world that I was, mm. that I was living in and um, so it, so there's a complicated sense of emotion for me connected up with this red river, and it's also the case that I really didn't have a clue what the route of the Red River was like. All I'd known about it was the humpback bridge that you drive over to get to Gwythian, which we used to get, beg my dad to drive over really quickly <laughs> so we could get a little kind of thrown off into the F from the back of the Maxi. Uh, And then as a teenager, I used to go surfing there and paddle out through red water. And I loved wading through the mud that would gather at the mouth, the arsenic, um, cadmium, cobalt-laden, beautiful, silky mud that would get washed out there. Um, But I'd never gone inland. And so I just, here was a landscape three or four miles away from where I grew up and yet for some reason I'd explored all the rest, you know, I'd done West Penn with the headland all the way round to Penzance from St Ives and the interior. I knew that really, really well. But why had I never gone to have a look at the Red River? So I thought let's go on a trip down the Red River and 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 be and be both local and strange to this place and mm. have a look. What's going on now? Because as we all know, those of us who live in Cornwall and have got a strong association with it, we all know that it's very expensive to live on the coast and that a lot of people who used to live in the coastal communities now live in the... In- I mean, yeah. it's not... Nowhere's really inland, but down that central spine and and it, it's got very complicated um, socioeconomic um,
0: economic yeah.
1: problems and challenges in that area. Yeah. And in the course of this nine-mile... I, I, it's not nine miles, but it depends where you measure it from. But it's sort of seven and a half mile. It's not even a river. It's a stream, really. You travel from areas that are troubled by multiple indices of deprivation down to Gwythian, where the beach hut's now changing hands for a million pounds. Um, Gosh. So it's, it's a really extreme um, economic landscape as well as... Uh, which just reflects the way in which the brand of Cornwall, made in Cornwall, Cornish art, the whole Tate effect, inadvertently and advertently, has just transformed communities.
0: Mm. So it's that real melding of people effect and land mixing together along that route. Like I say,
1: the, 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 the complicated thing about the Red River is that I didn't grow up playing in that valley i grew up playing in little coves so it's very hard to generalize it's very hard to generalize um but you can see that there is there is evidence of deprivation of feelings that somehow the brand of cornwall has forgotten this part of cornwall or it just plays lip service to it or just uses the Mm. image of tin mining We doesn't really Mm. care about it but the reopening of um or the D de- the I think I'm not quite sure where they're up to, but the dewatering of the South Crofty complex of mines by Cornish Minerals. I mean, this could we could, we could see it. Um, they're talking a lot about ethical mining, but we could see a big change. I think maybe once again because that in the in the wealth of the, that area, because you know, hundred or so years ago it was one of the as they as you if you read anything about this, it was one of the wealthiest mineral um, resource areas in the world that's a couple of square miles around Ruth and Cambon so Mm. much money was made from the extraction of extraction of tin so it's got this extraordinary history that places it at the center of the industrial revolution and in many ways it's still marked by that and by both the legacies of poison and the legacies of 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 having been abandoned, in a way, by money and capital. Once this was capital-intensive, people were investing hugely in effectively destroying the landscape to rip out the tin. Uh, and then the money flows out and the landscape becomes v- relatively valueless or until relatively, and, until until recently, and, and, and uh, damaged and uh, as a result of that um, sort of hidden and neglected... Uh, yeah, so it's it's one of those places that this 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 you can do a lot of thinking through it. Um, everywhere you look, there's something yeah. of interest, where you can see lots of tensions, hear lots of different voices, see signs of lots of different people's activities, good and bad. Um, You know, one of the first things that struck me when I first walked down the valley was that in certain parts of it, it was still being used as a dump. You know, it's as if this rubbish bit of of landscape, because it looked apparently rubbish, became a magnet for more rubbish and for more abuse. Um, Yeah.
0: Mm. A lot of your work seems to um, really lie in strong feelings about something that you care about or there's elements of politicality in it or, or environmentalism. Is it quite important to you that your writing is a vehicle for, for speaking about important things?
1: I suppose what I'm looking for is something that seems strange to me, that excites me in some way or upsets me in some way. You're looking for difference, I'm looking for, difference and strangeness in the landscape. So I've been to Malham Cove, you know, one of those great sublime romantic landscapes. I've walked up Helvellyn, I've walked along Striding Edge, I've, I've read an awful lot of books about similar kinds of landscapes and the, the transformative effects that spending time out in these places can have, but I have never experienced a sublime encounter with such intensity as the time I stepped out onto the surface of a mega dump outside York. Mm. There were twenty or thirty feet walls of bulldozed black bin bags heaped around me. I was walking on nappies and chicken carcasses and pumpkins because it had just been Halloween and I felt, I suppose, what might be called a hideous sense of sublime. And I felt that shock, that sense of scale change, that mm. sense of me being small but a devastating organism, more intensely there than I think I have done enjoying more beautiful, conventionally beautiful views the idea that beauty is terrible is um is an important one it 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 shouldn't be anodyne it should disturb us in some way and so without wanting to aestheticize big political questions i think disturbance can trigger an intensity in writing that m- makes it live that's not to say that one wants to be polemical but you want to find the points of tension and disturbance mm. in your life and in the landscape and write out of that. Because in a way, those are incohate spots in your life that become, which you're not quite sure about, which are sore and which are painful. But out of which you might pull a thread of words that carries some of that complexity with it as it spins out of that um, dark space. Mm. So... Um, so yeah, I, so I don't really see myself um, as as deliberately political. I am looking to break out of my habits. Like most people, I have lots of habitual ways of thinking, and I think poetry is brilliant at disturbing the way in which we think. And of course, we think in language. Um, so, greater disturbing the patterns of thought that language provides us with—you know, the given ways of thinking about something—poetry cracks that open and emerges out of it as something new. And, uh, and so, I suppose I am always trying to find things that might help me do that to the language that I am working with,
0: mm, mm. find that new perspective. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about. Um, boy, thing which I, I believe you're still writing. It's a collection. I've read that it's about the meeting point of psychoanalysis and acting, which fascinates me. It's... Right. Is that what I said? <laughs> well, it's it's really in a way.
1: It's um, I think it's kind of finished, but it's a, it's it's about um, it's about growing up in St. Ives, um, and it's about family and. In a way, it addresses some of the things that I was saying earlier about how things became containers for my sense of identity. Mm. That um, I saw things that disturbed me uh, and sought out things that disturbed me and that somehow articulated the sense of disturbance that I felt as a boy on the edge of a family that was breaking apart at that particular point in time, mm. and so without the language to be able to say precisely what was going on, you know, with between my parents or you know, I found things that spoke of that sense of psychic disaster that I was um, I was feeling at that particular time because I remember that as a very bleak. Um, period of my life and then that bleakness came back in my early 20s and made me think a great deal about where it might have come from and, and then another 20 or so years later finally <laughs> I get around to um, writing something um, that tries to um, without any sense of blame or any sense of but just to account for that period of time and I think I think most of us have in our lives those summers or those, those periods of time that are full of memorable, there's, a, there's an intensity about them. There's mm. some sort of transformation going on inside us and so we remember the environment that we were in when that transformation was, um, was taking place was taking place. Mm. But it begins with a celebration of grocer being, a, being a grocer's son. Um, yeah. It's quite something to uh, be a young boy and uh, be in a, sh- a shop and being able to sit at the back of the shop and count the money and look at all the produce and feel that you've got... <laughs> it, was a, it was a small shop but it it was a very competitive shop it was a very um, ambitious shop it sold some very good stuff and we were we were well known for cooked ham and um and stuff Um, (laughs) i'll read you i'll read you a short one this one's called fat years you know that you get the seven lean years and the seven fat years in the in the bible joseph and all that so this one's called fat years and i suppose it's the it's the everything that we had that was then the everything that we, we lost. Fat years. Our shop was known for the home-cooked hams. My father bagged with honey and spice and floated in the blackened sarcophagus of the hay box to simmer overnight. The flame lowered to a blue flutter as he fitted the stainless steel lid Sealing its edges with canvas wads. After chapel, he'd break open the box, slump a ham on the marble counter, nick its cellophane bag with the tip of a knife, the ham juice spurting like water struck from stone, a gush he'd catch in the handleless mug he handed to me, the fat. A golden scurry, as I drank, so that was a that was a Sunday morning ritual. Yes, oh, the hay box was, was this um, big, big cooking machine in the back of the shop, and my granddad did the butchery because he was a butcher, and so it was a proper it was a proper family proper family affair. Sometimes I'd be sent across the road to Lipton's to see how much they were charging for a tin of beans and <laughs> to <laughs> cut them, um, and other skullduggeries. And the other thing was, under the back of the shop, um, there was a stream, which was the, which I then realised much, much later was the Stenwick, through the centre of... Well, anyone who knows St Ives, there's a steep hill down into town if you're coming from the Penzance Way and all the way along down the side of it, running past the leech pottery and then, yeah, it goes underground just about that point, is the stannock. But it actually Mm. ran under the back of our shop and I can really remember my my dad lifting up the manhole cover on the back of the shop and showing me this river, getting his torch out and showing me this river running under the back of the shop. So, in many ways, the shop had a very... um, well, I suppose it that no wonder I liked the story of Joseph and his building of granaries and you know, storehouses and all that stuff. Because it did feel like our shop was a place of abundance and um, Yeah, and the seat of power. A seat of power.
0: <laughs> Do you know what I really feel you? I'm the daughter of a restauranteur and so ah. I also grew up with a fondness I have I have a storeroom in our very tiny Cornish cottage and I just love it it's you know the space could be used for something else but there's something so familiar to me about having oh, a little yes. storeroom to place yes. all of my food oh,
1: <laughs> yes do you know what I have been in lockdown I um, well we when we were when I lived in Scarborough we used to get deliveries from an organization called Suma and they would deliver me a sack of flour a sack of oats a tray of tinned tomatoes. Oh and uh, we did have a delivery down here before lockdown and so our garage because we live in a 1970s house and the garage person who had it before has put up loads of shelving it's like a mini stock room oh, it was like lovely. a mini stock room absolutely bags of flowers on the flour on the shelves lentils tin tomatoes <sighs> uht milk i'd go in there just... And- <laughs> <laughs> we're okay. We're all right.
0: We're gonna survive. We're gonna survive. We may be going mad, but we're going to survive. I so um, feel you with that. It's it's really interesting to me that you talk about that kind of place of childhood and what kind of going back to that in terms of your relationship to nature initializing and and now as a place to kind of explore through these poems about being a boy and being in that shop. And I'm aware that in some in your project Red River, that you are doing quite a lot of work with young people in schools and working with primary schools, having family day that you are doing with us, and yes. and also teaching at Exeter University, is yeah. it quite important to you, kind of working with oh, younger people? Yes. Oh,
1: I absolutely, I love it because once you've and you at Keep and you know Polly yourself, once you get children away from thinking about language always being in the service of something else always about writing an essay about geography or writing an essay about you know i don't know whatever and get them to realize that it's a free thing they've got in their mouth at any particular moment in time that they can get out and you know play with Mm. and enjoy and speculate about and rhyme with and be rhythmic with it's just so it's just so wonderful to see them remembering something that they knew so well until very recently. You know, because as little children, they, you know, they understand rhythm and babble and abstraction and silly words. And they're always playing with it. And then suddenly we, we watch it drift away. We watch it get ironed out and the role of creative writing and playing with language and reading, obviously, reading good writers who play with language, is to just keep that sense that language can be, can can change the way that you look at something or think about yourself or suddenly realise that you're a bit stranger than you thought you were mm. or more complicated than you thought you were. It's there at any moment in time. And to be with young people, showing them a poem, then setting them free with a few ideas to go and do something themselves and then for them to come back and just open up that half an hour's work that half an hour of them being them and more or so it's just a it's just a, a real privilege and i i feel that at university level because you've also got that opportunity to um you in, you, you you inherit people with a lot of reading and a lot of sense of what they think literature might be but you're always there to say well actually here we are in an educational setting let's just maybe put that aside for a minute and see if we can stretch in a different direction and and as you do that with other people so you you inevitably do it yourself you've got to you've got to keep reading contemporary poetry you've got to keep reading contemporary prose and and the the sense that you're going to have to stand up in front of a group of people and talk about it or inspire them um that's a pleasure, but it's also a responsibility and it's a responsibility mm. that then charges your own research. Um uh yeah, and so you're always looking out for good teaching materials, good things that will work with young people. So so yeah, it's really it is really important to me. And some of my the the, the, the most fun times I've had has been, you know, getting children to I did one. I did years ago. I did a, a, an exercise in, about abstraction, and just people were just making up babble words and moving <laughs> from that echolalia, you know, that kind of noise into into words, and then out again in a way that responded to. I think it was. I think it was a Patrick. Was a Roger Hilton painting in when I was in, living in York, but. Uh, it's just such fun. It's just such, such fun. Mm. And, you know, Keep does that all the time. I mean, you're, you're a brilliant organisation that really understands that play should be at the heart of creativity with language. And, uh, you know, so I'm delighted to be able to do a bit of family a family workshop. I, I'm at the, at the moment, I'm taking it very responsibly. I've been reading lots of river poems and... Um, looking out ones which i think might stretch everyone in a nice way oh, the great thing about lovely. young about young children too is that they're not they're not prejudiced against um difficulty if mm. you like they will sit back and they'll hear something and they won't judge it whether it's difficult or easy they don't think of it necessarily in those terms they'll think well does this that make me think of this you know they'll they'll let it It'll either work for them or it won't. And I um I love that open mindedness. So you so uh yeah, our workshops will have an odd one or two odd little poems in there that will just shake it up a bit, I think.
0: <gasps> we look forward to it. I I love hearing you speaking about all of it kind of it sounds to me like a very symbiotic relationship between the poetry yes. and the things that inspire the poetry for you and they kind of keep feeding in and out of one another so the nature and the education and the mm. collaboration and the arts and the, ver- the audio mm. and I mean oh, yes yeah. yeah, so the collaboration we haven't talked about that but I know you've done a lot of projects yeah. with other ex- oh. other universities not just Exeter and yeah. Yeah. is that important to I, you as well it's
1: so important to me because it's a holiday <laughs>
0: <laughs> I get
1: bored, I get bored of me, and and so if you spend a few hours with somebody who knows something completely different to what you know, and cares about it, um, that's such a great thing. I did spend a few very pleasurable hours talking about aquatic, aquatic worms, with the world-leading expert on aquatic worms wow. when I was writing something about the Humber Estuary. And he told me things about the sex life of worms that just really uh, <laughs> <laughs> had me deeply, had me very glad that I was a, a human male oh, rather my. than a, uh, a male worm. Because the, the, the project that I was working on was, um, it, it was exploring um, ocean acidification, it was for Hull 2017, City of Culture, so it needed to be about Hull. And it was connected up with an exhibition about the sea. But I actually thought, well, Hull's not on the sea. It's on an estuary. It's on an amazingly complicated mm, ecosystem of mud and whatever. Uh, so I thought, let's, let's let's find out about the mud. And, of course, the worms live in the mud. But he told me about this, the harbour ragworm, um, is colas something like that anyway the male and the female live in separate burrows and they don't they don't they don't cohabit in those burrows but at a certain time of year the male worm will fill up with sperm and it'll come out of its burrow and it will try and detect the smell of the female and it'll then wiggle across the top of the burrow and the female will come up bite the uh, male harbour ragworm, tiny, tiny, tiny little thing, not the big ragworms the fishermen work with, but the tiny, tiny, tiny thing, and pull it down into its burrow. And in puncturing it and killing it, will release the sperm into the burrow and fertilise the eggs. Okay, terrifying. But what's more terrifying is that changes in the pH of the ocean disrupt the chemical signals that allow the male worm to find its way across the surface of the mud on the one time of year when it comes out of its burrow which is synchronized i think with the moon or something i can't remember the full details but that ph change will in effect render the worm chemically blind it won't be able to find its way to the burrow it won't be able to be smelt by the female so it won't be able to be bitten and it won't be able to and these little worms they secrete burrows that knit together all the particles of the mud so the mudflats wouldn't exist if these worms weren't there knitting together the mud particles with their tiny little burrows. And they filter the water and they're a basal species. And if they die, the mud turns black. And if they die, the golden plovers that everyone likes to look at won't come back. And, and the flounders that... This is a big hatchery for flatfish, the, the Humber Estuary, won't be there. So, mm. um, so I wouldn't have learned about any of that had I not collaborated with Yorga Harding at the uh, University of Hull, and mm. um, it would have been a huge loss for me, and that figured in an exhibition that was part of Hull 2017 at the Ferrens, working also with a friend of mine called Rob Mackay, who um, is a sound artist, so that's the other. That's the person who I'm collaborating with also on this, this project. And I like working with Rob because he... Um, He's irritating. He keeps stopping. <laughs> I'll find a sound. We'll find a sound together. And he will just stop. And he'll just listen there and listen for 15 or 20 minutes, and I'm champing at the bit to try and get on. Or he'll just uh, last time we were down, um, we discovered that the culverts at Tucking Mill were where the river, Red River, went underground. So we found some holes in these uh, manhole covers and he dangled through some binaural microphones these tiny little microphones wow. and made some recordings of the um the river where it was underground which is truly astonishing because as the car comes down the road towards warrior discounts uh it sounds like an earthquake underground Gosh. which i just thought was a great um metaphor for the impact of cars but anyway uh but you know it will be in the middle of the road and you're <laughs> No, we once did a recording at Staves on the North Yorkshire coast and uh, they're big mudflats, uh, sorry, stone reefs that go out to sea and he was with a like a 15-foot microphone boom waving it around in the air during the middle of a thunderstorm. I mean, he wow. was saying, oh, Rob, get off, come back, come back. No. But I can see
0: how you love it because it's that and, yeah. and the worm story. It's all people... Helping not. you notice, exactly. which is what you're saying, That's you it. enjoy That's in a completely different it. way. That's it.
1: They sl- that that you're absolutely right. Rob stopping slows me down. Mm. Um, Rob putting his microphone in a strange place or dripping winkles into a rock pool to make that lovely plinky plonky sound that they make. You know, just stops you and you think, gosh, yeah, that that if I can get that in a poem. It will just make that little moment mm. shareable with a reader and I, and I and I think at a basic level, you want to know difference, you want to know strangeness, but you also want moments where you can share common ground, and of yes. course, as we all know, you're a writer, Polly uh, the image, that concrete detail it can resonate in lots of different ways but It's also common perceptual ground between you and the reader. We can both think of a periwinkle. We can both think of it dropping into a rock pool and that noise that it makes as it plinks into the water. And, you know, isn't it strange that we can do that with this weird succession of sounds that we make? Um, that yeah. we can throw into each other's heads, these images and things that we love and care about. So I just... Uh, that always amazes yeah. me. I, it does amaze me too, yeah. So I quite like writers who make language a bit strange too, um, just to remind us that it all comes from these words on the page and that they're not transparent, which is takes me back to The Red River because the opacity of The Red River, in a way, is why it's textually so interesting it is turbid, you can't see through it. It's not beautiful, and it's loaded with us. It's loaded mm. with silt. It's loaded with stories.
0: Mm. Oh, that's so beautiful. Well, wow. I think we'll we'll stop on that because that sums it all up really and and that description of language and the strangeness of it and the the expression, and I love that idea of trying to express something deep within us and it coming out in its varying forms and i can see why you know you meet different people and that helps try and pull something out of you further and you're trying to express something of a time that you were particularly fascinated by or that keeps kind of playing again and again to you and or something that you're interested in and just trying with words that's what i often mm. feel like anyway it's mm. i'm i'm trying again and again to express something <laughs> deep within and play mm. whilst trying to do it because mm. it's all about playing and There is Mm. no definite way.
1: (laughs) Mm. And sometimes by playing, you release something unexpected. The language surprises you into an emotion that you've not felt for a very long time. So you're no longer expressing yourself. You're being almost expressed by the text that you've played around with, the surface that you've rearranged. It starts to take you away into an unexpected form of yourself which you know is 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 the other is the flip side you can do the kind of expression thing but you can also do the the playing around with it until suddenly it clicks and like a container like a well-thrown pot or whatever image you want it just holds you you've manipulated the language until it holds you in a way that feels feels right
0: absolutely is there a poem you'd like to share before we end
1: oh go on I'll read you um I'll read you this one. This one's um this one's about driving home. This is a while ago now, but why not? Um It's called Sleeping Child and it's about driving home with a child in the back. Then I'm big I couldn't do this now. Oh. oh you miss you miss the kind of um being a climbing frame, I think. Which is <laughs> 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 one of the things about being a dad right <sighs> Sleeping Child you sleep while names of villages rise and fall away taillights dwindling ahead until only we summon the sign for crossing deer steer by the constellation of a pub the edges where the wipers shove the rain gel and tremble sucked thin by small riptides. I rest my elbow on the doorframe like my father would and read the road through fingertips. A milestone unfolds. Let's go of the verge. The barn owl. Gone before I realise. That's how we get home. And what will you recall of the sudden lift from car to bed Your eyes broken open for a moment by the light in the hall.
0: So beautiful. Thank you, John. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you for sharing all your thoughts and processes. And we very much look forward to having you along. So I think you're down the 26th and 27th of June. You get to come back to your native Cornwall and lead two workshops with us as part of your Red River project, one for adults and one for families and that's going to be walking and writing is that right that's right beautiful well thank you so much for coming along and we look forward to seeing you
1: thank you very much polly it's been a pleasure to talk to you
0: you've been listening to words in a time of lockdown from the writer's block cornwall Music and sound by Jimmy Marshall of southwestsonic.com. Next month, I have not one, but two guests. I will be speaking with Claire Owen, author of YA novel Zed and the Cormorants, and Sophie Eldred, the voice of the audiobook. We will be talking about the meeting point of the arts, how acting influences writing, and vice versa, and how Claire came to write such three-dimensional characters, and of course, so much more. Subscribe and like to hear when it is released.